This program is sponsored by Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts. Located at 185 Worcester Street, right on Route 9, they can be reached at 508-545-8105 or at wickedchronicvendorcommerce.com. Wicked Chronic is a boutique-style retail shop that focuses on selling counterculture products such as Wiccan cannabis cultures coming together in a unique setting. You need something for that special spell? Go on down to Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts and speak to Beverly. Tell them Dr. Chris sent you. Check them out today. to the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the cancelled shows in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I am Mr. Zeneca. And tonight's episode is The Butcher from Season 2. Mr. Zeneca has the episode synopsis for us. The Butcher, originally aired April 24th, 1989. A Nazi scientist uses a cursed amulet to bring a Nazi colonel back to life in order to kill Jack and his old army buddies. Now, for anyone curious, by the way, whenever I play the promos for the Friday the 13th, these are coming off of YouTube. There's really no other place that I've ever been able to find them. So however they were recorded and stuck on YouTube is exactly how I'm playing them. Because I've noticed this and someone else commented saying, do you notice you've cut off the beginning of the promo? And it's like, no, I don't cut anything off. The promo actually has a delay and then the, then the sound kicks in. So there is a probably maybe... 10 to 5 seconds worth of words or dialect or music just before the promo is probably supposed to start, the uh, narrator is supposed to start, but that is unfortunately the way it is on YouTube, and that is the way I play it. So if you're, if you're coming into it and it sounds cut off, I apologize, but that is what we got to work with. Uh, these were promos for a TV series that is uh, about 30 years old. Just keep that in mind, too. And not available for sale. No, these promos I wish were put on the um, the DVD for the for the series, but most likely they would have had to pay out to the narrator um, a lot of uh, you know royalties, and they probably didn't want to do that, so they decided to excise the promos from the box sets. Since it's a studio thing, they got to save money. Let's face it, they didn't put exactly a lot of money into the DVD box sets. These are all VHS transfers, so. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The episode was directed by Francis, uh, sorry, written and directed, sorry, written by Francis Delia and Ron Magid, Magid, were the writers. Uh, Francis Delia we've talked about before. Um, he also worked on American Haunting and several other shows. And Ron Magid worked on 
uh, a few things, but didn't do very much. Um, story consultant on the episode is our, is our friend Jim Henshaw, who unfortunately was not able to make it with us, uh, make it onto the show with us this week. But he said that uh, coming up in a future episode, he will be returning because we will be sending off one of our characters and introducing a new character to the show on a regular basis. And uh, we've got uh, a lot of guest stars on this episode, too. Yeah, this was a Mickey and Ryan free episode. Which is like, okay, we always usually, well, most of the time, we get like, where's Jack? Well, he's off finding this object. There isn't a mention of Ricky and Mickey and Ryan other than the opening credits at all in this episode. None, None whatsoever. And I have to say, like, this was a well-put-together episode. This was like... Uh, cinematic. It had it, the 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 setup for each of the scenes seemed tight. The storyline was compelling. This was a well-rounded, excellent show. But according to Elise's uh, book, Elise's wax Elise wax book, not really loved because of the the fact that Mickey and Ryan aren't in it. <sighs> um, one thing I got to point out right away: our resident Nazi. Uh, played by Nigel Bennett, who is still alive today, lives in Wolverhampton, Staffordshire, England, United Kingdom, um, is best known for playing uh, Lacroix, uh, the vampire who turned Nicholas Knight in the TV series Forever Knight. Oh. He was a radio DJ vampire, by the way, which gave me the idea for Radio of Horror. <laughs> he actually would be on at night at the midnight talking like this. And expositing dialogue and poetry. Oh my god, his radio voice is perfect! Yes, however, by season three, there was a massive amount of changes, and the show went from CBS or NBC to USA Network, and they lost a lot of their budget, because USA Network back then was not what it is today, where you have, like, The Purge and Mr. Robot, which are, like, high-budgeted <laughs> shows. By the way, go watch The Purge. I freaking love it. I hope we never have to can't cover it. But moving along... Uh, he became the bartender at the bar that Nick hang out at and did like this broadcast in the back room. So it's like they probably lost the set for the, the radio studio or unless they were renting one and they couldn't mm-hmm. afford a budget anymore. So they just said, oh, well, we'll just have him do his radio show in the back room. And all of a sudden he's the owner of the bar that Nick always hang out at, used to hang out at, at with his vampire uh, BFF girl, not girlfriend, <laughs> but girl slash friend. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, th- that is where this actor's from. So anyone watching the episode, if you're not, if you he looks really familiar, that's why. He also just happens to kind of look like a certain vice president of the United States. But <laughs> no, I mean, not he. He's got too much of that uh, Nordic look to him to really uh, imitate our current. Uh, Whatever you call it. Right, and by uh, the way, uh, what, <laughs> one of the other best, one of the other great things I thought about this episode was um, one of the few African American actors who appears on the show. Let's face it, we don't have a lot of uh, people of color on this show, but mm-hmm. one of them is uh, who unfortunately passed away in 2004 is Julius Harris, who plays uh, Jack's old war buddy. You might remember him best as Teehee, the Man with the Claw, one of the Bond villains in Live and Let Die. Nice, and in this episode, he plays the character as Simpson, one of his, uh, one of Jack's uh, VA buddies. Correct, but I thought I immediately recognized him because I've seen Live and Let Die so many times. Um, he uh, he's got like a mechanical arm because he mentions to James Bond that the crocodile ripped his arm off. 
<laughs> and he's got like a hook for a hand and everything. So, and he's a formidable uh, Bond villain in the Bond pantheon of villains. In fact, this was like that was the big movie, by the way. They had like voodoo, and they had like um, they had uh, you know, uh, I think it was Yasa Yasa. Uh, they, they, oh God, I forgot his name, but he's the African American actor from Alien was the villain in that, where he says, uh, "My name's James," and he goes, "Names are for tombstones, sucker." <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So anyway, also got Colin Fox, who was in Daylight and PSI Factor, which is a show my mom always watched, but I've never been into. Uh, he was on the Dead Zone TV series, which is a show that I've been asked about for a recover. Unfortunately, it's a little too long, but good show. Go check it out. Um, we have Sherry Miller also in it. She was in The Virgin Suicides. A very excellent movie if you've never seen it before. Was on an episode of The Dead Zone. Correct. And uh, playing the young Jack Marshaw, we have David Blackler, who I don't have a photo for him, but according to IMDb, was acting up until uh, the movie Scott Pilgrim vs. the World came out. He was a location scout manager for that movie, and that's pretty much what he's been doing. For the last uh, few years off and on, I, I had to do a little bit more research, but he's been on a few TV series that aren't listed on IMDb. But uh, yeah, he basically went from acting to location scout managing, also was on Forever Night, and was also in War of the Worlds. Ah, yeah. again, it keeps coming up. Keeps coming up, always going to come up, we're going to cover it at some point in the future. Eventually. Eventually. Okay, so this entire episode is about Jack and about the war and, and Nazis and all of that. So when I first read this, uh, the list of episodes, you know, just the titles of the episodes, The Butcher, I was like, okay, we're going to have like a cleaver, a meat cleaver or something like that. Nope. And then as soon as I realized, I, I looked through Elise Wax's book and like, oh, Nazi amulet? I'm like, oh, oh shit, okay, strap in. It's going to be an adventure. Uh, and I was not disappointed. No, but it is... Um, Without, like, bogging this entire half of the podcast, because we divide the podcast into the, to the two episodes, down, this episode has so much social relevance to what's happening today and what oh people are God. talking about. We, I, I, we'll, we'll get it right out the bat right now. The, um, the Nazi who runs the radio show basically says a lot of things that are being said by people in the media today. That the disenfranchised and the poor and the and the immigrants... On talk, on talk radio. On talk on radio. Talk. Not on the Radio of Horror show, because we don't cover any no. of that shit. Um, <laughs> uh, those, so, like, those people are causing the country to be what it is and why we, got, why we voted in somebody like Donald Trump. There's no way to, other way to say that, yeah. and I'm just going to say it the way it is. And they took a, 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 the tactics from the Nazi playbook and basically are spurned up the populace into this the type of stuff that you're hearing in this episode, which was made in 1989, and you know it's evoking like a Rush Limbaugh, Alex Jones type of type of vibe, but this um, colonel, which renames himself Carl Steiner. Uh, he is like an Alex Jones. He is a talk radio show person that has the charisma and the attitude and just the ability to turn terrible ideas into logical conclusions. Yeah, and you got to think about what was happening in 1989, Mr. Zeneca. Who became president in 1989? 89. Was that uh, Bush? George Bush the first. Yes, the first George Bush. And in 1989, it was also the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. 
And it was also a year away from the Iraq War, the first Iraq War, Operation Gulf Storm, uh, Operation... Uh, Desert Shield. Yeah, Desert Shield, which lasted Desert for... Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Yeah, which lasted for like a month. Um, no, longer than that. Uh, it didn't last that long. It lasted like, we went in and then we went right out. It was... My mom, my mom was on tour that time, so it lasted a bit. It lasted a bit, but it didn't, it didn't last as long. It did not last like... It's not the Afghan War. I'll no, it and way. it didn't last like more than a few months, maybe. Right? It's like a year, two years. But we were on the verge of very politically large changes throughout not just this country, but the entire world with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yes. And which is relevant considering, hmm, who was in the episode? Former German Nazis, not Germans, you know, old old school German Nazis, not current Germans. Um, that, that colonel that turned, uh, well... To to give you the the overall breast here is that there is a Nazi amulet from the Thule Society that Uncle Lewis had you know had contact with in some way shape or form. The amulet, which is related to the Thule Society, one piece of it goes on the corpse, one piece of it goes to the controller, uh, because the corpse after the ritual is done, the corpse rises and becomes a living human being, you know, and so in this episode, Colonel, uh, what's his name, Colonel uh, Roche, uh, becomes uh, Carl Steiner as the radio talk show host, and, but in order to kind of keep his power levels up, he has to kill, you know, just like we saw in, you know, previous episodes, you know, if you've risen from the dead, you have to kill pretty often, and, um, the controller limits who that person kills. So he can't recharge his energy until he kills the person aimed by the controller. So the controller in this one is uh, uh, Muller, who is in prison behind bars, but still controlling him. And because of this, you know, it, it's, it's like a, a puppet being mastered, and yet uh, it... it, it kind of circulates back into what our current society is it's really interesting to see this old 1989 episode with today's modern political culture it, it's just it blew me my, my mind away from it i had to actually watch this episode twice okay so uh to give you a little bit of background on the thule society the thule society in the actual episode itself there is the ritual that they do to bring the corpse back. So that's, uh, Spirit of Thule, I hold the amulet of your worshippers. Masters of Asgard, guardians of the master race, hear our cry. Here li lies our chosen one, your warrior servant, give his body life. Now, in this ritual, the corpse of uh, Colonel Reich rises, and then, you know, is now a living person. Uh, the Thule Society itself is an offshoot of the uh, secret, uh, it's a secret society offshoot of the German Order, uh, the Berlin Lodge of the German Order. Now, the German Order uh, is a, like in a military Nazi group of which underneath it, you can consider the German Order like an umbrella, and the Thule Society is underneath that, and so is the SS. So there is a lot of occult mysticism involved into the Thule Society, the SS, um, all of these different parts because the people themselves that were into it, 
were occultists. Uh, but there is actually no connection uh, or evidence that Hitler was ever involved directly in the Thule Society. But the Thule Society did uh, teach Hitler how to be a public orator. And so it's kind of said that perhaps Hitler got some occult knowledge or uh, occult help by uh, being associated with, with the Thule Society. Yeah. There's a lot there. You know, if, if you want to go into the history of, like, what the Thule Society believes, like, it's, you know, the Aryan race is actually aliens, but they're not really aliens because they believe in a hollow earth theory, so they come from a continent actually inside the earth. It's really, really weird stuff. It's like Scientology if you really look at it. It's like, hmm. So are you <laughs> saying there's a direct link between Scientology and the Thule cult? I would say... <laughs> I would say it wouldn't be a direct link, but it's along the same lines of crazy. You know, the Thule Society, you know, one of their, uh, in, see, I have a date here. Uh, Madame Blavatsky, uh, Blavatsky, in 1888, she went on a trek to Tibet and got some information from the monks of Green, which supposedly had direct contact with Talking dragons. Now, this is all weird, and I know, I know, I know. Uh, talking dragons, uh, telepathically telling them about the history of the human race. And out of all of that that she got, uh, which she read something called The Secret Doctrine, and it basically, you know, in, in a giant nutshell here, it basically said that uh, the Aryan race is the race of hope, they had telepathic communication abilities. They had superior strength, uh, and and they were they came from the northernmost land, at a place called Thule. So that's why they named their their society the Thule Society. You know, this episode focused a lot more on um, Jack and his old war buddies uh, teaming up to take down a uh, you know an evil Nazi that kind of got away from him more so than about a cursed object. Like the cursed oh, object took the complete and utter back uh, backseat almost the entire time. Like other, uh, other unlike you know Vera the doll or the wood chipper or um, you know the the chain and that and that hot rotting episode that we saw a few weeks ago. Oh, I, oh yeah. This yeah, this yeah. honestly had almost nothing to do with curious goods. It was just a big old Jack backstory to the time that he was in the war. I completely agree. I completely agree. But uh, I got excited because there's some actual occult knowledge here. You know, usually these Friday the Thirteenth episodes are pretty light on actual stuff. It's just my... I got a little overexcited. The radio show host, like I said, he be, he becomes a radio show host very quickly, and it's like, you got a question, okay, so he's risen from the dead, and then automatically he's a radio show host. How much time passes? Uh, I mean, I don't know. They don't really mention when he was risen back. It, had, been re it had, had been recently. It had been recently. a couple years to be a, an established DJ. A radio host. Oh, so you think the be the opening was uh, a couple years ago? I think so. Oh wait, 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 wait. They did say that um, Mueller was uh, had escaped from the institute, the prison, one year ago. So he he's been alive for one year. That was towards the end of the episode. Oh, okay, gotcha. 
the getting strangled by the barbed wire was uh is a pretty intense way to um you know kind of kill him off way to go yeah uh in all honestly the german spies a garrot wire was part of their standard kit you know garrot wire a watch with a microphone built in uh those were standard to carry amongst german spies so not no surprise there but the idea that it's barbed wire you know, that was purely for the show there's not a german the the german that they talk about which is actually the the butcher mentioned here uh that is modeled after klaus barbie klaus barbie lived from uh, october 26 1913 to t september 25th 1991 but he was known as the butcher of lyon uh, having personally tortured French prisoners of the Gestapo while stationed in Lyon, France. And uh, basically his career, if you, if you can call it that, rose to power and uh, through the ranks from him being noticed for being ultimately cruel. And so his cruelty is what drove him to rise through the ranks. Yeah, to announce it, it definitely was a career. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... He joined the SS uh, at 22, and uh, it's said that he actually was personally responsible for up to 14,000 deaths. So, Holy yeah. shit. Nasty. Nasty guy. Wow. But There's a movie I in theaters right now about um, some people going after an old Nazi. Oh, which, which movie is that? I don't Yeah, Operation Final. Um, Fifteen years after the end of World War II, a team of top-secret Israeli agents travels to Argentina to track down Adolf Ankermann, the Nazi officer who masterminded the transportation logistics that brought millions of innocent Jews to their deaths at concentration camps. Hoping to sneak him out of the country to stand trial, Agent Peter Malkin soon finds himself playing a deadly game of cat and mouse with a notorious war criminal. The movie stars Oscar Isaac, Fred Berger, Brian Kavanaugh, Jones, uh, Jason Spire. Oh, interesting. It's currently in theaters right now. Well, I mean, they're probably not going to show some of the more horrific stuff. It's rated R. Uh, yeah. They can get away I, I have a... They'll get I, oh, by the way, it's directed by a guy who directed... Um, <laughs> which is funny. He directed New Moon, uh, one of the crappy Twilight movies. Twilight films, yeah. The first American Pie. And Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Interesting. <laughs> His body of work is very vast. <laughs> Also directed Cinderella and the Golden Compass. <laughs> hmm. So, again, very odd range of body of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, th this Klaus Barbie character, uh, one of the more horrific tales that I could find was that uh, he had caught one of the most valuable you know, catches, uh, Jean Moulin, a hero and prominent figure of the French Resistance, and uh, caught, beaten, then skinned alive before immersing his head in a bucket of am ammonia. Jesus Christ. You know, I have a good old saying I love to, uh, I always love to repeat, especially in nausea over the last year. Make America a better place. Punch a Nazi in the face. Oh, my God. You know, going down this rabbit hole of Nazi occultism and... You know the ties here and there. I mean, there there were projects of Nazi occult everywhere. Even though the 
uh, it, I think the tides turned for the occultism in, uh, what was it, 1945, w uh, where the Ecton Hess basically washed all of the occultism out of Nazi mm -hmm. uh, because of Hitler's extreme paranoia. It was like he came to the understanding that this stuff was real, and so therefore uh, it needed to be scrubbed away because no one can do magic unless it was for him. Hmm. And just that paranoia kept coming up. He you was he was uh, syphilitic at the time. You really got to wonder of all the shit the Nazis did over uh, what is it now seventy years ago, right? Am I doing my math right? Uh, back in the nineteen thirties and forties, let's just say that. Yeah. Back yeah. in the nineteen thirties and forties, why would why would anybody want to wear their symbol today? I don't know. I I really don't. I mean, the what they stood for was to I mean a part of their part of their method is to selectively breed until they basically reestablish the Aryan race which of course as I said was kind of alien in nature mm -hmm. but they believed that you know if you did if you couldn't trace back your lineage uh to I think it was the 1600s um you weren't a pure Aryan so then they started to come up with two different classes of white person. Uh, so, I mean, when you get into that type of politics, you just get more exclusive and more exclusive and more exclusive until you, there's no one left. You know, a lot of that, um, a lot of what was going on this episode, and of course, Jack traveling to Berlin, which Berlin in 1989, wow, they don't even mention like the Berlin Wall falling down. That's why I wanted to bring up the Berlin Wall. I mean, think about what year it is. And what year did the Berlin Wall come down and Jack is going to Berlin to that Nazi uh, prison? Yeah. Which, yeah. by the way, why weren't anyone? Why wasn't anyone who was part of the Nazi Party executed? Because as far as I know, the harshest trials against the Nazis besides... Um, obviously in America, were in Germany itself because they were so ashamed. I don't know the politics on that one to say why they didn't execute, why they just preferred banishment or life in prison. I think banishment would have been too good because you can just set up some nice cozy little place, let's say in Argentina or oh, South America. Some, some people did. Yeah. Some people were given sweet deals for their information against other Nazis so that they could become banished and live in Brazil. Did you ever read the the book or see the movie At Pupil? I had not, no. Oh my god, are you serious? It's no. one of Brian Singer's uh yeah, best it's one of Brian Singer's best body of works. Love or hate Brian Singer, I don't want to get into the allegations behind him, but it's a decent body of work. It also stars um Ian McKellen. He plays the Nazi who the boy next door finds out is a former Nazi war criminal. And that's very, very, I wouldn't say funny, but ironic for Ian Kellen to play that type of character considering Ian Kellen is a, a Jew and a uh, he's a gay Jew too. Yeah. I mean, think about who he would play in four years after that movie comes out in 2000 in a little movie called X-Men. Mm -hmm. He would play a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust, Eric Lyncher, a.k.a. Magneto. Magneto. Magneto, yeah, who then eventually would be played by a different actor and um, I wouldn't say better in the performance, but just a amazing performance by um, in the actor from Prometheus. God's now escaping my name. Um, you know who I'm talking about. I can imagine the face. Okay. Um, Jack's little trip to Germany kind of reminds me of this scene right here. going to play a clip.
my boy. We're pilgrims in an unholy land. Oh, my God. And it's uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, who is half Jewish. Um, and it is of Harrison Ford and uh, Sean Connery as they are going to Berlin to hunt down the Grail book, which uh, the uh, woman who betrayed both of them, because she slept with both of them. I love that scene, by the way, when she gets <laughs> and he finds out that, that they both slept with the same woman. Oh, yeah. They, they're like, uh, well, I was the other man. <laughs> um, and uh, And then he's like, I you stood up you stood coddled with the enemy of everything the Grail stands for. I don't give a damn what you think. And he grabs her throat, and then she's like, "All I, he's like, all I have to do is screw, squeeze." And then she says with tears in her eyes, "All I have to do is scream." Do scream. And then he lets her go and walks away, and she doesn't she doesn't turn him in. I mean, she's like for the Grail, but for her own ways. And the music, by the way, you hear in that scene is the. I am gonna mispronounce this because I don't speak German, so excuse me. It's Konig. K-O-N-I-G-G-A-R-T-E-T-Z-E-R uh, March is a famous German military march uh, uh, composed by uh, Johann Gottfried in 1866. And was that scene also portraying the uh, Nuremberg Rally? Uh, it's incredibly powerful to watch because you have all of these child actors throwing books into a giant bonfire and all of these actors, oh, these are actors by the way, are all, you know, they all sign on for these roles or whatever, but they all have to wear the swastika and they have to throw these books, which apparently were uh, books that were going to be thrown out anyway, thank God. Um, I've, I've heard that the books being thrown into the bonfire are actually books that were going to be uh, recycled. So they were books that okay. were already heavily destroyed, molded over, and stuff like that. So they well, were that's not, a little bit better. Yeah, no. Spielberg made at, went out of his way to go to libraries to, make, to find books that were going to be tossed out in the trash so that they could be used in the scene. Uh, but there is just the haunting image of the pyres of fire in front of the Nazi flames in front of Adolf Hitler on the stands as everyone's marching past him. And then, of course, Hitler, I mean, uh, uh, Indy and his father try and leave, and they run right into Adolf Hitler. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like he just came off the podium from the Nuremberg rally, and you can see these, like, thousands of uh, Nazi flags behind him and people all wearing their Nazi regalia and their, and their swastikas everywhere, and... Indy just runs into him, like bumps into him and hands him this book, and it's the Grail Diary. And what does Adolf Hitler do? He signs it. Oh, yeah. And hands it back. We also need to point out that um, Harrison Ford is over six foot two, maybe six foot one. Hitler should be coming up to about his, below his Adam's apple. (laughs) How tall is Hitler? Hitler was only about five foot five. Ah. Yeah, Hitler was not that tall. So a lot of people have always thought it was very funny who uh, Spielberg would cast, Spielberg and Lucas would cast in that scene as Hitler, because that actor is as tall as Indiana, as Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Thule Society thought that uh, Hitler could be the Messiah. Oh, oh boy. They had been prophesizing a Messiah that could bring the country together, cr- countries, you know, together, and they heard him talk, and then they're like, well, I think this guy is it. And so they trained him to be, put him in that spot. Um, said. We we get to really see this uh, kind of military side of Jack in ways we've never seen before. Um, the only piece of his past that we've ever learned about was that he had a son who died. And uh, so now this is going even further back into Jack's past. And one thing i got to point out is that 
so the Nazi, so Jackson, Germany, getting the information from the old Nazi war criminal, the Nazi he's trying to find is at the shop killing his best friend. Mickey and Ryan, it's like, how much time is passing, considering that it's about 48 hours in, in, in total, you have to think, for Jack to go to Germany, get the information he needs, get out of Germany, fly all the way back to wherever Curious Wherever is, the show is. Yeah, wherever the show place. is. Clear customs, get out of there, get back to the shop. It's going to be like 48 hours. That's not a 24-hour trip. Yeah, from what I gathered, it seemed like his friend was killed on like a Friday, and this is you know through the weekend, and no one came back home, and so the body was still there. It's like the blood was dry. That was a little detail of age of the scene. Definitely. Um, so after he finds his best friend, or sorry, his old war buddy killed, then what happens? Oh, well, uh, he basically finds his war buddy killed, and because when he visited Mueller in prison, Mueller did a very brilliant villainy scheme. You know, everyone else had in the picture, you know, the Hayasis, uh photograph that he's just kind of ticking off people as they die. Everyone in the picture is dead except Jack. When he's visited, he gives Jack the rest of the amulet because it has no use to him now that all the other people are dead. That becomes a situation where uh, Jack is inexplicably pulled towards uh, Colonel Rosh. Rosh wants the amulet in order to become immortal and, uh, and thus not have to worry about ever dying. And Jack wants to get the amulet so that this, you know, walking corpse can, you know, not walk anymore and and be dead again. Because, you know, there's a scene with one of his other uh, VA buddies, Shaw, where Shaw is saying, you know, people don't come back from the dead. And, and Jack has this look of despair and knowingness that's like, yeah, well, you know, things can be stranger. And his friend goes, no, they, you know, it's... It, it, it can't, you know. I'm I'm aware of what's going on. He's not going to sneak up on me. And and Jack is just, you know, like, man, yeah, this is going to happen. Like he knows the people closest to him are are most at risk. But what are you going to do? You know, this this person is going to seek out and kill your buddies. And so it all builds to this climax where uh, Jack is at. At Curious Goods, and uh, Colonel Rush like bursts in through the window. Jack had prepared. He's, he has his gun and just shooting willy nilly into the darkness. Was there insurance? Could you put insurance on your business back in the eighties? When did that become like a thing to do? Because how many times has Curious Goods been shot up, set on fire, crashed into, broken into, busted up, blood everywhere? Oh, you definitely have to have insurance. Even in the eighties, you had to have insurance on your on your business or property. Okay, just want to make sure. wasn't I? I wasn't. Yeah. I didn't know when that became a thing. So, because I'm like, Jesus Christ, this must be the worst place to insure. Also, once again, proving you cannot be friends or related to anybody from Curious Goods. I know, right? Right. Um, you know, his his army buddies that survived a goddamn war got liberated from a concentration camp. And they die from being associated with a cursed object. 
Jack, However remotely associated. Jack defeats the uh, the evil Nazi war criminal, putting him in his place, as you should. If you ever <laughs> encounter this type of situation, you know what to do. Um, I do have to point out that the black and white sequences in this episode are a thousand trillion times better than they were in the previous episode with the flashback with the effeminate vampire man-child uh, kid that befriended uh, uh, Mickey's nephew. Yeah, uh, from the episode A Friend to the End. Yes. Those flashbacks were horrible in their uh, cinematography. In the, in the production, yeah. Those those were grainy and bad quality without it being meaningful. And in this one, we have the black and white contrast, high contrast film, uh, grainy with you know a bit of blurs and stuff. And I think it was done pretty well to show that this was wartime. You know, it's gruesome. You don't really want to have it in color. Believe me. You don't want to see those. No, <laughs> Don't want no. to turn into a snuff film. Now, before we cut to our break really quick, I wanted to point out that we do have a Patreon that you can join us for on the Radio Horror Network. If you type in Dr. Chris's Radio Horror on Patreon, you can come up with our Patreon page. There's also a link on the Dead TV podcast page, which I will post on Monday. Uh, which would be 924. So at the time you're listening to this, it should already be posted. So go back into the page, uh, the Dead TV Podcast Facebook page, and you can check out the link to our Patreon. I uh, wanted to do a shout out to our newest Patreon member, Stacy. Last name F H U, which I'm not going to try and pronounce because I will probably mispronounce it correct, mispronounce it incorrectly. Uh, so thank you, Stacy, for becoming a standing member of the Dead TV Podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, she always has an interesting comment to leave on the Dead TV Podcast uh, Facebook page, so we do always appreciate it. And you can always leave us comments on the Dead TV Podcast Facebook page if you disagree about anything we have said in regards to this episode. You will be deleted and blocked and banned from the page. We're not. We're not that, here to argue Nazism. No, we're. I'm, I'm forewarning you right now. If you want to argue about whatever we said about the episode, that's fine. We're, we might be wrong. But if you want to argue about any of the political views we happen to share in this episode, which were unavoidable to talk about, you will be blocked and banned from the page. Warning you right now. There will be uh, no, no tolerance Get that out of the way. for yeah. racism or intolerance at all. What we said is 100% truth. That's all I'm going to say anymore about the subject. I don't think we encounter as heavy a political topic on the show as far as I'm aware, unless there's obviously like a political candidate kind of episode coming up, but again, I'm at season three, I'm not as knowledgeable about. So, um, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Dead TV podcasts in the next episode of Friday the 13th, the series. Star Vanity in a special episode of Friday the 13th. She's a hot and sexy singer. He's her most devoted fan with an evil plan of seduction. Now, apparently, what the bauble does, it fulfills all your deepest desires. Don't you want me? I want to be you. A fatal attraction. Christ, he's got the bauble! On Friday the 13th, the series. Next week, obsession leads to possession. And we're back on the Dead TV podcast with our next episode, The Secret Agenda of Mesmer's Bauble. The Secret Agenda of Mesmer's Bottle originally aired May 1st, 1989. A pendant gives a mild-mannered record store clerk with psychotic tendencies unspeakable powers, which he abuses to fulfill his dream of meeting a beautiful rock star and becoming her.
big, uh, I guess, star of the episode is this woman named Vanity, who I'm actually not all that familiar with other than her appearing in Action Jackson, if you remember that oh. movie, with Carl Weatherby, best known as playing, of course, um, you know, he was in uh, he was in Rocky, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4. He was, he was Apollo Creed. Well, Vanity is actually, her real name was uh, Denise Matthews. She was Prince's protege and was actually on uh, or in a band called Vanity Six, which Prince had helped to kind of arrange. It's an all-girl band. Which is why we see the uh, Purple Rain poster in the background. Oh, shoot. Hold on a second. My microphone just crashed on top of me. That's why you see Purple Rain, the movie poster, in the background. Yeah, yeah. And this was, since this was, was an episode taken in 1989, she was actually on Playboy, in 1988, so this is right on the on the cusp of her uh, pop culture celebrityness. You know, is being on Friday the Thirteenth the series kind of the the high watermark in her television career? I don't know, but uh, she actually had a downward spiral and um, that culminated in a lot of cocaine and crack cocaine use using. And uh, it was until 1992 that she actually got out of that addiction. Oh, no. And she actually appeared in 1992 on one of my favorite series on USA Network, Silk Stockings. Well, you know, she kind of turned evangelical preacher after a while. Oh, Oh. she died in 2016 at the age of 57. In this episode, and of course, like in Action Jackson, she was freaking beautiful. I mean, she's smoking. Smoking. Oh my god! She's African American, African American German. That's quite that's quite the mix. Um, but just just so pretty, unbelievable. Oh. Prince considered her the female version of him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Prince, you know, even uh, picked out a name for her. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, it's. Vagina, but uh, she oh decided to go with vanity, yeah, which I'm was like a second uh, option, he said. <laughs> um, our buddy Howard, by the way, was in a previous episode. He was in The Great Montaro. He was uh, Robert. Oh, okay. And he was on Friday, He was on War of the Worlds. <laughs> you know, we're always going to bring up War of the Worlds until we actually do that show. <laughs> we can't help it, okay? If you get tired, how about this? I know, we'll I know, never, I know. We'll never bring up War of the Worlds again when we start doing like Dracula the series or Adam's Family because I don't think we have mentioned yet the Adam's Family or Dracula the series in going through the IMDb list of any of these people. So don't worry. At some point, we won't be talking about it anymore. Uh, Tony DeSantis, who plays Robert, the uh, or Roger, excuse me, the um, the guy who looks like Geraldo in this episode, um, has been in uh, was in Double Exposure. He was uh, Detective Duncan, and he's going to be in Mightier Than the Sword next season. Oh, nice. He was also in Night Heat, the Left Behind movies, uh, the movie Red, which is the uh, contract killer comedy, you know, co- action comedy movie, um, Narc, Flashdance, and Sea of Love with Pacino. Ooh. The episode was written by Armand something. He uh, is still with us and worked on Dark Shadows, the revival of Dark Shadows. Uh, touched by an angel because we'll never cover that show. And <laughs> yeah, he he wrote eight episodes of Friday the Thirteenth and four episodes of War of the Worlds. So he actually still has, according to this, 
one, two, three, four, five episodes left to go. So we, his name will come up uh, a few times uh, during our coverage of Friday the 13th. And then the episode was written by Joe Gannon, who, uh, Gannon, of course, always, every time I hear that name, will always remind me of the Legend of Zelda villain, um, is still working today as far as I'm aware, but has worked on uh, WizKids, A Different World, and In the Heat of the Night. Cool. And cool. Law and Order. I've uh, worked on several episodes of Law and Order. Um, that would be interesting, though, if there was a vanity song that I could play during this. Is there? Well, I mean, there. I I don't know that we would actually have one to uh, that would be recognizable. But the first song that is played, which she's singing at the very beginning of the episode, is a song that has been used in a number of uh, productions, and it's called Nature Boy. Uh, Nature Boy, which I don't think you'd recognize in its original form. Uh, but it was produced by Nat King Cole, uh, March 29th, 1948. But it was also used as the opening I song right in Moulin Rouge. Oh, I actually have it right here by the late, great Nat King Cole. Oh, then put it on. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far Over land and sea A little shy um, Yeah, I immediately saw that it was by Nat King Cole. I, I definitely had to play it. Of course, um, my favorite song by Nat King Cole is a lot of people's favorite song. I know he has a great body of work, but the one song I always associated with him is uh, the Christmas song at Christmas time. Oh. <laughs> Which I know you don't celebrate Christmas, but Nat King Cole's Christmas song is pretty beautiful. It's amazing, yeah. It, it's it is pretty, pretty good. good. And his entire body of work is pretty awesome. But as a child, that was the first song I was exposed to as uh, from him, so... So, another thing I wanted to touch upon in this episode, and I've had a little experience with this before, and I'm sure you have as well, being a, a, a former model um, mm-hmm. and a woman who works in the uh, sex education field. Basically. Okay. That's the best way I could put it. You're, you're, you're a... It's you're, apt. Yeah. You're a mistress, and you work in sex education. Uh, adult yes. sex education. Let me, sorry, rephrase that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, stalking. Ah, uh, Yes. Yeah, the obsessive stalking, just all-encompassing this this guy's, Howard, the character's name is Howard's interest. He's got pictures of the singer, Angelica, uh, plastered all over his walls, standees. I mean, it, it's it's to that point of crazy level. Dangerously crazy level. So, the... Uh, the main character, Howard, like, he is not an attractive guy. You know, he's got this pimply, pitted skin uh, that in the very beginning when we were hearing this song, uh, Nature Boy, uh, he's trying to put on makeup to cover his acne scars and his pimples and it's just not working. Uh, you see him at his record store job and he, even though he's knowledgeable about the records that the girls are talking about with the Angelica records, He's ugly. You know, they're not paying him the time of day, and in fact, they're trying to get away from him as fast as possible. They really do a good job of making that guy look hideous. 
They do. <laughs> There's no if and buts about it, and I'm not trying to be cruel against anyone who has pockmarks or anything like that, so please don't take it that way. But in this episode... They make yeah, Bill bad. Murray has pockmarks, yeah, you know. Yeah, you can he, you can get a totally career with it. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. Look at uh, uh, Oz, Oz, what, what is his name? Uh, um, Seal. Well, Seal, but also uh, the the actor who played um, Commander Adama on Stargate. I mean, Stargate, Star Star Battle Battle Star Galactica. Battle Star Galactica. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's all the manner of your character that really can outshine things like bad skin. The the, uh, the record store thing is a big deal to me. Uh, this past weekend, the day we're recording this, is the 23rd. Yesterday, Corey and I, my girlfriend, went to Hampton Beach for a little anniversary uh, kind of vacation, and there was a record store on the boardwalk. And the record store was a combination of CDs, records, uh, you know, rock posters, rock uh, pictures, um, you know, marijuana paraphernalia, um, mm-hmm, buttons, mm-hmm. Yeah, typical yeah. like border, you know, shoreline stuff. Yeah, typical border, you know, uh, boardwalk beach record store. It was it was very very cool. Right in downtown in Natick, Massachusetts, there's a record store. That's Entertainment, uh, friend of the shows, sells records, and they have a record store right next to it because in April there's National Record Store Day, and there are hundreds. I would say close to about now to two to three hundred brand new vinyl records put out on record store day um, for mass consumption. Now, not every single store gets them because they sometimes run out very quickly, but uh, you know, if you find out you have a record store near you, you can always put in an extra order in. And of course, when people like Prince and Bowie died, they put their entire albums back out, you know, their entire category of music that was available back out on vinyl. And so there's always like old stuff coming out on vinyl and there's new stuff getting re-released and stuff that has never been put on vinyl before. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I know that there are record stores around me. I've gone to a few of them, but I don't own a turntable, so I only own one record, and it's Devo, and it's never been opened. And, of course, this also brings to mind one of the greatest movies ever, Empire Records, for the 90s. Damn the man! Save the Empire! Um, it's Rex Manning Day, Mr. Zeneca. What are you going to do on <laughs> Rex Manning Day? Um, Rex Manning Day. That, that exa- is exactly like the scene. Like, Angelica's manager is going to go to this record store, and Angelica's making an appearance. And, you know, it's Rex Manning Day. It's that type of energy. Right. And Howard would be basically Liv Tyler trying to give his virginity to um, to Angelica. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, Absolutely. Excellent movie. If you've never seen it, it's been it's been available on DVD and Blu-ray for a number of years, so it's easy to track down. The soundtrack run you like two to three dollars on CD. Great Excellent soundtrack. soundtrack. It's Excellent like soundtrack. nice poppy music. Yeah, really great movie. I wish they had made a sequel, but that movie was a box office bomb and took years for people to eventually find it. Got a cult following though. Massive cult following. I've heard they wanted to turn it into a TV series set in the '90s, and I'm like, that would be perfect. That would be yeah, very, very cool. I'd watch it. Yeah. There's a scene in that movie that really... I, I find it very difficult to get through sometimes. Um, it's with uh, Kristen Taylor. Is that her mm-hmm. name? Kristen... Uh, Robin Taylor? Robin Taylor. Uh, who's in uh, The Craft. You know, she's the good witch. Yeah, the yeah. Which, uh-huh. by the way, in The Craft, there's a scene where she, like, shifts... She shakes her head, and you see her wig flop backwards, and you see her shaved scalp. I didn't notice that. <laughs> yes, in the craft she has to wear a wig because she filmed the craft and records and uh, Empire Records back to back. And in Empire Records on camera, like um, Natalie Portman, by the way, in the movie V, she shaves her head. 
She does. Yeah. yeah. But the it's... scene where she talks about like, you know, like, you know, like her manager asks her, you know, do you want me to call your mom? And she's like, could you? Because I have some questions I'd like to ask her myself. Ah. <laughs> wow. Really powerful scene. You know, suicide, not funny, handled very well in that movie. So, uh, yeah. good film. Go check it out. Let's get back to the episode. Okay. All right. Uh, so this cursed object is called Mesmer's Bauble. And we first encounter it, like, right in the beginning, where a jewelry store window is, you know, smash and grab job, and our main character, Howard, just happens to be right there. And uh, so the the burglars dash off with most of the jewelry, but on the ground outside is Mesmer's Bauble, which is this tiny, you know, maybe about two-inch big uh, crystal pendant. And it kind of sparkles, so so he picks it up, and uh, then he gets harassed by this jogger that kind of blames him for breaking into the store, because, you know, he didn't see what was happening. And he says, uh, you know, drop dead, buddy. And, uh, yeah, he does. And thus, the, uh, the pendant just kind of absorbs that death energy, you know, powers up the... The, the power level of the of the device, and he's able to get his first wish granted uh, a little later, which is um, he wants his skin fixed. And poof, his skin is all, all perfect, no pockmarks or any, anything like that. It's, it's wonderful. Very reasonable request, as long as you didn't have to kill anybody for it, but you have to <laughs> kill somebody in order to get perfect skin, so... You know, with that, with that the concept that the... Objects themselves kind of speak to those to, you know, with these deep desires or these insecurities and, you know, they cast their line out and then hook their sucker. Um, it almost seemed in this episode that the sparkling of the bauble itself was giving him some additional information because he asked the bauble at one point in the show, uh, what else can we do? And it sparkles almost in response. Yeah, it's not so, a magic eight ball. Huh? This is not a magic eight ball. No, it didn't tell him actual things. You know, it just gave him the impression like what he could do and what he wants. And you know, this episode, you know, Jack not uh, it had mentioned Jack had mentioned that there's no pattern to their hunt for this object, or like for most objects, because the owner of the object, uh, the holder of it is so chaotic in their intentions. Their goals are not stated. Uh, they have this drive to fulfill whatever hole inside them that they need to and doing these terrible things. So, but it's all like ruled by the id. It's ruled by that immediate knee-jerk reaction to things or that desire that, that you know, with, without restraint. What could these people do if they didn't have the restraints of their current existence? And so when Howard finds this bauble and he's able to fix his face and then he's later able to or fix his skin and later able to fix his face and then he d decides he wants to become Angelica's lover like this bauble is able to provide it as long as he kills someone. This episode has uh I mean the previous episode only had Jack in it. This episode has very little of our actual entire cast and crew if you've noticed their actual screen time is extremely short compared to our antagonist 
Yeah, it, it pretty much wraps itself up. Uh, they just get the opportunity to just snatch the bauble from the neck of the holder, yeah, which I, I, I wish that the promos didn't actually state that twist at the end where Howard becomes Angelica because he doesn't want to... Uh, yeah. He, like, doesn't, he doesn't want to have sex with her. He wants to be her. The incredible gooeyness of their merging into one being after his wish to seduce her comes true is disgusting. And then Rose puts her hand in it. Ew! Oh my god. It was like some great body gore. It's like hands against a piece of, you know, vinyl to simulate the skin. Like, you know, they just kind of merged into one another. And because they were naked in that scene... Um, Vanity actually just did the whole scene completely naked. Oh my! You know, they were they had some prosthetics put on them so that you know the camera couldn't catch whatever. And as they're rolling and as the scene is going on, and you know they have to climb on top of each other in different positions, and it kind of was a little bit too much for the studio. So most of what was shot was not actually put into the final cut that we see. It just looks like a giant bukkake mess on the floor. I kind of think that's might of what it needed to be. Like, I, I, I get it. I get it that the goo is the uh, immersion of two selves into one. It has the symbolism that is fetal in nature and the essence of what women can bring. And he's he's trying to be a woman in that like completely transgender way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't get the whole transgender thing until, like, the very end when it actually started happening, and then he switches back into his real form and then melts again all over the place. Him doing that body-swapping thing is very reminiscent, or sorry, a movie would come out in about, see, this is 1989, so in about three years. Very reminiscent of a movie that, uh, John D. LeMay would star on that we would talk, that we have talked about excessively. Jason Goes <laughs> to Hell, The Final Friday. What does Jason do in that movie? Body swap. It's a new feature of Jason in that movie, where he can basically regurgitate his demon baby into someone else's mouth, and then the a body that he just came out of would start melting down into a puddle of nasty, gooey stuff. And it happens to one of the victims in the movie that John is trapped in the closet watching while it happens. Yeah, and we get that big gooey mess at the very end when you know he turns back. And I guarantee, if this had been like on a different network other than syndication, or if this had been a movie, it would have been as gross as we see it in the Jason Goes to Hell movie. Because in Jason Goes to Hell, we see a complete decomposing, melting body from start to finish. It's pretty gross. Yeah. Uh, don't eat your lunch while watching that scene. <laughs> <laughs> This whole thing with Angelique coming to the store reminds me of, do you, do you ever have strawberries in your area, the record store? No. Okay, strawberries might have been just a New England thing, but hey, if they were in your area outside of New England, leave a comment in the description box below, because I would love to know. They don't exist anymore, and they were bought out by FYE, which is the current music store chain, but which, by mm -hmm. the way, is now becoming more like a Think Geek or a Newbury Comics or something like that. Newbury Comics, for anyone not in New England, is a s string of stores that sell, like, shit you could find at ThinkGeek.com. Think Geek actually got bought out by GameStop, so um, collectors, geeky stuff, t-shirts, they used to have a big CD selection, now they have a bigger records section, because records have become bigger. Anyway, Strawberries had a 
appearance of Rob Zombie the day that he was going to have a concert at the Palladium. Palladium is a concert hall in downtown Worcester, not far from the radio station, which is connected to Rocket Shock, which is where Radio Power actually launched in 2007. So in 2003, I went to Strawberries, and I was the first person in line. I waited in line for three hours to meet Rob Zombie, and I was the first person in line. And I got to meet mm-hmm. him immediately, and got pictures with him too. Even though his manager said he's not doing pictures, Rob said, "No, no, no, it's okay. He can take pictures." <laughs> <laughs> like, shut the fuck up! I'm going to take pictures with my fans. He's also the first person in line, so it was really cool to meet Rob Zombie. He signed both my CDs, shook my hand, took two pictures with me, and I took off. And by the way, 100% free. Excellent. Yes. Nowadays, I don't think I could get a 100% free experience like that with Rob Zombie. Not at a record. Not at a. Not at a store. I, I mean, I know celebrities still do see, you know, store signings and stuff like that, but I don't know the extent of what you have to do to get a signing. Usually it's just buy whatever book they're promoting out right now. Like Bruce Campbell was in town selling his new book, and you just had to buy the book, and you got a free picture and a signing with Bruce. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so stuff like that does happen, but it's very rare these days because obviously CD mm-hmm. sales aren't what they used to be, and iTunes sales are definitely not what they are. Correct, yeah. So, um, I never owned a bobble necklace thing, and I definitely don't own any Nazi memorabilia. How about you, Mr. Zeneca? Uh, I own a book, uh, which is an analysis of the SS Waffen uniforms that I use to... uh, But you don't own uh, a swastika, though, to wear around your neck. No, of course not. Okay. Of course, of, co- of course not. I just, I just like the costumes. <laughs> well, we need. To, well, we also, we, we should also point out in the fetish community, wearing a Nazi uniform or a German World War II uniform, if you don't want to call it a Nazi uniform, a German World War II uniform in the fetish community is very, very hot. It is, and, and that's all because uh, you can seek out the most taboo topic with fetish. Yeah. Look and. At the, Speaking of Rob Zombie, God, think about that short film he did, Ilsa, She-Woman of the SS, or Werewolf Woman of the SS. You could just put that on as porn in the background. All of two minutes of it, yeah, because it's a a little trailer that he made for the Grindhouse movies in 2007. It was never never actually made into a movie. Yeah, yeah, but you could just put it on the background. Yes, definitely. We might actually play it here at the very end. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, what about the other thing? Do you own anything like the necklace? I, I do, actually. I own several things like the necklace and even things that uh, are supposed to kind of magically, you know, ease along the types of problems he's talking about, you know. There's a lot of magical stuff I have. So gotcha. Just leave it at that. Okay, all right. Well, that's pretty much it for the Dead TV Podcast. Don't forget, you can check us out on our Facebook page, the Dead TV Podcast. Join us there. Leave a comment. You can also send us an email, thatradiohorror at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter. And I leave you actually with the trailer from Werewolf Women of the SS, which was part of the (laughs) double grindhouse bill from Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez here on Radio Horror. I just want to play this because it's fun. So. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Do it. Uh, I do not believe in any way, shape, or form Rob Zombie endorses uh, Nazism of any kind in any form. When they make stuff like this, it's purely to poke fun at it. I believe so. Okay, here we go. This film is a brilliant achievement in motion picture history. Finally, the truth about Hitler's diabolical plans to create a race of superwomen can be told. 
Werewolf women of the SS. Welcome to Death Camp 13, home of the Nazis' diabolical plan to create an army of super werewolf soldiers. This project, its failure, will be your demise and the end of Germany, Bowman. You have been chosen. <laughs> Rejoice! I have found the perfect solution. The she-devils of Belzac. alone supply the blood needed to save Hitler's mad dreams, or will the pride of Germany fall into ruin? This is my project. We are now in total control of pure rule. Oh this is an outrage! Featuring Udo Kier, Sherry Moon Zombie, Tom Tolles, Sybil Danning, Bill Mosley, and Nicholas Cage as Fu Manchu. This is my <laughs> Werewolf Women of the SS. Written and directed by Rob Zombie.